Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome, welcome to another edition of Why We Love, where we take a popular franchise in our culture, in this case, two popular franchises, and we talk about what makes them so great, why we're drawn to them as people, and why after so many years, these stories continue to move and inspire us. And today, we got a double feature for you, a double header of two of the great stories and franchises of fantasy books and filmmaking. And so we are going to talk about today why we love Middle Earth and Narnia, aka the stories of Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings and the stories of C.S. Lewis and The Chronicles of Narnia. Before we get started, just want to remind you that if this is your first time listening, feel free to subscribe, feel free to um, leave us a review if you enjoyed this episode, and we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to connect with us on allthingsnarrative.com, and yeah, let us know what you want to hear on the podcast, and let us know what you think and if you've been enjoying it, and if you're a Lewis or a Tolkien fan, you know, follow us on social media this week on our Facebook and on our Instagram, because we're going to do some posts and talk about some of our favorite moments. And we'd love to hear from you what your favorite Lord of the Rings and Narnia moments are. So feel free to let us know any of those ways that you choose. Without further ado, I would like to bring a special guest on this episode. Now, We don't have with us this week, we don't have Joseph and Jason, they're out for this one. And so I'm actually here right now at this moment. I am in Corfu, New York. If you don't know where Corfu is, it's right outside of Buffalo. And I am here with, honestly, the only person on earth that I would want to do this episode with. Uh, someone who is a dear friend, but also someone who is passionate about the stories of Tolkien and Lewis. Everyone, let's give it up for the man, Ryan Mading. Welcome. Hello, hello everyone. Thanks for having me, Derek. <laughs> is this your first time ever on a podcast? Ever. Cool. This is exciting. First time recorded in any form. See, I already like having Ryan on because the moment uh, before we got started, he's like, hey, I brought some some Guinness. And I've never had Guinness before. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that on here. So I'm sitting here having my first Guinness ever. And I love it, by the way. These like creamy kind of stout-like beers. These are nice. Oh, yeah. So thank you. Absolutely. turning me on to Guinness. You got to have one around St. Patrick's Day. That's true. Filming, uh, recording this around St. Patrick's Day. And as we'll see, as we dive into these wonderful brilliant men great things happen over drinks <laughs> absolutely so all right so what we usually like to do uh, ryan is we like to start off with a brief history uh of these franchises now it's interesting because the lord of the rings and narnia their histories are very intertwined and so we've got lewis and tolkien who are students and feel free to like interrupt and join in as well as we do this so we got lewis and tolkien who are students at oxford 
And uh, they're both, you know, very passionate about literature. In fact, I just learned this this week. I don't know if you ever heard this, but the first time they met, I believe they got into an argument. And their argument about was about which one was worth pursuing, uh, studying linguistics or studying in literature. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually heard about that. I, I couldn't verify if it was one of their first encounters with each other, but it's definitely a part of their yeah. uh, relationship, right? They are they're kind of unique in that they're academics, right? Yes. I mean, they're brilliant. I don't know all the franchises that you're going to cover, but I can't imagine a lot of the authors are going to be academics right. as a background. Yeah, and Tolkien was the one who was really into language, mm -hmm. you know, that linguistics, that was really his expertise. And we'll see later that words are something that he's very particular about, whereas Lewis focused a lot more on literature. He actually wrote quite a few books outside of Narnia, nonfiction books, works of theology, and even uh, works on literature and literary criticism and theory and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, these guys were awesome. Now, have you ever been to Oxford? I have not. Oh, no. see, I got to go about seven years ago, and we we went in the morning on, like, a bus tour, and right where they dropped us off on the bus was in front of this little place called the Eagle and Child. Mm. Now, the downside of that was that it was 9 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> You couldn't go into the Eagle and Child at 9 oh, o'clock in the morning. You just had to wait for 9.30. They start doing <laughs> I wish. Oh, I know. I was so sad. I was like a puppy dog eyes, like just staring in the window like, mm, I want to go in. My only experience with the United Kingdom was uh -huh. in Scotland. I was oh, visiting yeah, you my, have been to Scotland. Yeah, I was visiting my uncle in Edinburgh. Well, that's where Lewis is from, right? He's actually from Scotland. Or, or is he from Ireland? I I'm not maybe, sure. Maybe I think Irish. he's Irish. Yeah, okay. My bad. I'm pretty sure he's Irish. Mm -hmm. um, but I got off the plane. It was early in the morning. I only had a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And so we started to see some things. Mm -hmm. And at, I think 10, 1030, my uncle was ready for his first beer. Really? We went into the first pub. It was maybe 10 o'clock or something. And he wow. was like, I just need to stop and get a drink. And uh, we kept going back throughout the day. Wow. I mean, it's just so funny. That pub life. Yeah, it's just such a different culture. It is. And it wasn't uh, uncommon for Lewis and Tolkien to gather, you mm -hmm. know, there frequently. And to actually, it's almost, you know, ironic because it's around the drinking and this social atmosphere of the pub that they actually swapped a lot of their great ideas with each other. Mm -hmm. So I believe Lewis got to read a manuscript of The Hobbit. Right, like Correct. some some of the early pieces, and even Lord of the Rings, and I think there's a story about Lewis almost being moved to tears because he knew that what Tolkien was writing was going to be big. It was special. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And you know, you had this group of guys who were just exchanging stories. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't fleshed out. It started out small, and they helped each other build it up, and. It's just special to see that bond, right? You, you're oh, yeah. working through something together. I yeah. mean, you know, if you've ever been a part of a team, you know what that's like yeah. to, to help each other grow and to refine something. Totally. And you had this community of people who often met in a pub and yeah. sat and chatted and 
shared their stories with one another. And as they did that, they found they had a lot in common too, because they were both in World War One, mm-hmm. and I do think that's where some of their like inspiration for maybe like battles and those types of physical conflicts comes from. They both lost their mothers as well at pretty young ages, I believe, mm-hmm. and that uh, profoundly shaped them. And they both had obviously equal passions for words and for for literature and reading and stories and all that stuff. And I know Lewis taught at Oxford. Did Tolkien teach there as well? He did. Okay. Yep. Did Lingu- it- uh, philology. Which okay. Is language. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. So it's cool that they had they had a lot of things in common, and Lewis was a huge fan of Tolkien. Just even as they were friends, he was just a huge fan of what he was doing. But their conversations eventually became a lot more than just literature because we know that Tolkien, who had a very Catholic background, was introducing uh, C.S. Lewis to the world of of theism and theology because Lewis was an atheist at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's through their conversations that eventually – uh, Lewis converts to theism and then eventually like uh, like a form of like Protestant Christianity. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's such a unique thing about their relationship and their works as well is because they are two people who were deeply interested in story, deeply interested in language and mm-hmm. f- philosophy as a byproduct of that. Yeah. But they were also really deeply interested in religion. Yeah. Uh, and that really formed – most of everything they did. Yeah. 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 It became so important that it's in the stories. It's baked into them. Yeah. And it's actually very ironic because when it, Lewis began sharing his ideas about Narnia, Tolkien actually wasn't quite a fan of it. He was a critic. <laughs> he was a critic to say the least. And I think part of that was, you know, they had very different ways of how they integrated theology and their beliefs into their writings, you know. Uh, Lewis, I would say, is a little more on the nose, a little more forward with his imagery. But as we're going to talk about in a moment, I don't think he was as intentionally allegorical as people make him out to be. But nonetheless, you know, they, uh, they had very... For, for as many shared beliefs that they eventually came to have, they had very different ways of executing them. And so Tolkien uh, – tell me if you think this is a fair description. I once heard that like Tolkien really values you know, obviously words and language and very like, like deep philosophy. Like he wants that philosophical depth you know, into the stories, whereas Lewis – he seems to start with an image. He seems to be more of an image person because like he talks about like the image of the fawn with an umbrella or the lamppost in the snow. Like he talked about how it started with these images or the girl Lucy who was inspired by a real life girl in his life. You know, it started with these images and images kind of start. He, he would play around with these images in his mind and you know, that's what he was more concerned about was creating like a detail sort of and a story around those those images and details. I don't know. Do you think that description's kind of fair to say about how they're a little different? Uh, maybe to some extent, but you have to remember that 
Tolkien kind of starts that way too, right? Mm. You know, that's that's yeah. the beginning of his of his work in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, Tolkien starts his writing in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Oh, yeah. So not good. a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. You know, yeah. and, and I think Tolkien will talk about that being the starting point for him. Right? Yeah. He came up with that, and, yeah. and then he expanded. And Tolkien, as he expanded, seemed to be really deeply interested in his his religious faith right his right. catholic background his mm-hmm. catholicism um and you can see that interwoven every step yeah he, he, tolkien has a a pretty big plan for his stories and some people will push back and say that lewis didn't yeah and and i would say go and read michael ward's work right mm. he i haven't read it all i've read yeah. parts of it i don't know yeah. if you've heard about it derek yeah but I think, I think. he gives a pretty good account from what i understand of mm-hmm. it being very coherent mm. so i don't know i think they're both working in similar ways but there is definitely a different flavor yeah i think lewis's work i don't necessarily think he's making it up as he goes but i also and we'll talk about this when we get into the mythology a little bit. But I do think that he uh, maybe had a certain idea of how far it was going to go and then wanted to take it further. And that forced him to kind of add things to the mythology. But but we'll get there in a moment. Before I want to dive into the mythology, I'd love to just kind of know, like, what was your personal introduction to um, to these worlds of Middle Earth and Narnia? Well, I can't think of the exact date, but Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out in the 50s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's been out for a while. Mm-hmm. My mother was born in 57. Mm. So if it gives you some perspective, I mean, it was released – it was before she was born. Okay. So she read it when she was a child. Yeah. You know, when when she was within 10 years of age or so. Mm-hmm. And um, it was important for her that I read it, that my siblings and I read it. So mm. that was that was the first story for either of them that I really got engaged with. Yeah. Um, and then I read the rest of Narnia. Yeah. Um, and I didn't touch either of them from there okay. um, for a few years. And then I, I picked up The Hobbit first mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it's kind of – it's a classic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like oh, yeah. it's easy to get into because everyone knows it. Yeah. Um, and I just fell in love, right? I love Tolkien's emphasis on this hobbit life, right? Yeah, like this, yeah. This small community of people. Yeah. It really captured my mind. Yeah. That's good. That's good. How about you? Uh, my introduction was um, for Narnia. It was in elementary school. And it was just being in the library. You know, it's you got to have a good Good library, good school library. You know, one of my favorite things to do in the week was just they would just let us wander in the library and just look at books and just kind of see what was interesting to you. And I can't remember which Narnia book in particular caught my attention, but I do remember being drawn to them, drawn to the imagery on the covers and and whatnot and just thinking, ooh, I'd really like to, to read these, you know. I don't remember... 
I might have read The Magician's Nephew first because I would have, knowing myself in elementary school, if I would have seen one, like book one, I have to read book one. Just like like with the Hardy Boys and all those books, it's like, oh, I have to read the first one, even if you know, the series doesn't go in order. I have to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure I read The Magician's Nephew first. And then I probably read The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. And I read The Silver Chair. Those are the only three I read in elementary school. And then it was my freshman year of high school that the Narnia, or right before my freshman year, a year before, when the uh, the Narnia movie came out, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. And I was in love with it. And people don't understand at the time how huge that movie was if you weren't there, you know? And I remember I was in the high school band and our my for my freshman year of marching band, our show was was Narnia. Like we literally had a wardrobe that was built and like the color guard would go in the wardrobe and the, we and we played the music from Narnia. That is awesome. And I, I, that's why I fell in love with it's one of my favorite movie soundtracks cuz I had to learn that soundtrack, you know? And I just fell in love with it. Um, it was so, it was just so gorgeous and so epic at the same time. Yeah. It was a big deal that these movies came out when we were relatively young, right? Well, and even the Lord of the Rings movies, which is, oh, okay. This is like confession time because I'm really embarrassed for what I'm about to tell you. Please forgive me. Uh, so the first Lord of the Rings movie came out and I was like, like it came out in what, 2000. One, two thousand two, yeah. something like that. Really? Yeah. I wasn't like super interested in it at the time. The two towers had come out, and it was in theaters. And my uncle was like, who's like a big liter- literary guy, was like, "Oh, we gotta go see the two towers in theaters." I'm like, "But I haven't even seen the Fellowship of the Ring." He's like, "It's okay. Like, just let's just go." And I was so bored out of my mind because oh, no. I knew nothing. I had no context <laughs> for what was happening, and the, I think the two towers. I still stand by that it's the worst of the three films in the trilogy. It um, drags. It drags. Is that your point? It dra- yes. Well, especially if you the don't pacing. know it. And if you don't know it, it's fine now. I enjoy it now. But if you don't know what's going on, whew. And so I, I think it's the only time in my entire life I've ever fallen asleep in a movie theater. Um, so that left a bad taste in my mouth. I think I just wasn't as interested. I, it was just bad timing. But when I got into Narnia a few years, or sorry, Lord of the Rings a few years later, that was a whole different ballgame. And same with The Hobbit as well. So, yeah, I think this is a good time where we can kind of dive into the mythology a little bit here. Sure. So both Lewis and Tolkien have this belief that myth is representative of the deepest truths of the universe. And so they talk about how like myth isn't fake or fiction. Myth is a way of expressing what's real, you know, and myth is, and this is kind of like Joseph Campbell type of stuff is that myth is an aspect that helps us understand who we are, where we are, how we got here and where we're going. Um, you know, like Lewis talks about, like, I, I, I actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the, the crux of the argument that Tolkien used to win Lewis into theism was that Jesus is the myth made real. 
like the myth in history that it actually happened. It took place, right? It's all these mythological stories that come together in a real life person and event. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, so for Tolkien, he he was raised in this Catholic tradition. And and it seems that that was always an important part of his life. Whereas in Lewis, it wasn't right. Right. We've already discussed he was an atheist for a majority of his young adult life. Yeah. uh, And then changed atheism into Christianity. Right. Um, But they both loved stories. And I I imagine that they had some struggle with this because Mm. Christianity wasn't very kind to mythology. At least it yes. wasn't when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think it would have been any better for them. I, yeah. I don't know. I haven't read anything on that. But, you know, Paul talks a lot about stop listening to these myths. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But for the two of them, they were able to see that these stories, although they aren't true, they hold the glimpses of truth. Yeah. And that was important. And when you them. say they're not true, as in like they're not like historically They're not historical. True. Correct. Right. That they are, they're they're not historical accounts like they say Christianity is. Right. Right. right, right. So for them, they distinguish that, but they say even though these stories aren't historically true and aren't always um, theologically accurate or morally accurate, they hold pieces of the truth. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big part of their understanding of story. Yes. Is that. They point back to the truth myth, as yeah. as Tolkien talks about. Right, right. right. They, they hold a glimpse of what is true and yeah. good. And- yeah, and let's dive into that. Let's dive into the specific ways that they really did that. So um, we'll give Tolkien the – we'll give him the right of way to go first since he was kind of the first with this. But let's, maybe we'll spend some time talking about the mythology of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth. And I think out of that we can tr- go to Narnia at some point as well. Sure. But but yeah, so I can imagine this is where we'll probably spend the bulk of our, our conversation I here. I can imagine so. But yeah, okay. So like, so go ahead and walk us through a little bit. Like for for anyone who's listening, who maybe doesn't really know much about the world of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, like maybe in like two to three minutes, how would you describe kind of the central story, the narrative that's taking place? Well, like I said earlier, I think it's important to remember how Tolkien star- starts mm-hmm. with oh, there's a hole in the ground, right? Mm-hmm. That that starts his story, mm-hmm. and I think that's important in the sense of keeping in mind that he wrote this for his own children. Yeah, right. You know, we talk about it as kind of this deep theological, phil- philosophical type mm-hmm. story. Yeah, and he started it as a way to engage with his children. And, what, it, and it expands drastically. Was was so was the Hobbit written like more directed towards children, or was the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, or was the Lord of the Rings more adult? Oh, he definitely distinguishes that the uh, Hobbit is a children's book. Okay, it right, it, not that it doesn't hold great truths and it doesn't do dramatic things. Yeah, but it is written for children. It's yeah. written for his own children. Right, and then Lord of the Rings, he really he fell in love with this world. Yeah, and so he realized that there was a need to expand it and to really put depth to it because Mm -hmm. he knew that there was depth to the story. And and that was, I think that's part of what you talk about the difference between Lewis and Tolkien is Tolkien wanted to really flesh out every corner of his world. Yeah. But to get back to kind of summarizing it, Mm -hmm. you have 
you have this children's story that is it's just kind of it's fun it's it is a lot of fun right oh it's yeah a, you know there's dragons there's there's orcs there's goblins there's enemies mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. things going on there's an adventure he recognized mm-hmm. that these conflicts with these bad you know with the villains mm-hmm. this adventure for young kids was so important yeah and so the hobbit really kind of sets the stage for him to go in depth and and to really make a more philosophical more religious sure works in lord of the rings so the lord of the rings starts with uh the shire it starts with frodo mm-hmm. and yeah Samwise and Bilbo and Gandalf shows up. And, you know, you have all that kind of that, like, he loved Tolkien loved that little world, the Shire, right? Yeah. And he talks about, I'm just a hobbit. I love being here in this little world, just drinking my beer, tilling the ground, planting things, Mm -hmm. enjoying the earth, and just having a quiet life. He loved that aspect. So you kind of start in this ideal place at least for Tolkien yeah and then um I would say probably the thing that motivates the story as a whole is, yeah is Tolkien's idea of view catastrophe have mm. you heard of that Derek yes okay do you know much about it no okay Tolkien says all of a sudden I realized what it was this idea of you catastrophe that he's going to describe the very thing i have been trying to write about and explain the sudden turn in the story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears Mm. and i was there led to the view that it produces its particular effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth Mm. that is kind of i haven't read autobiographies of Tolkien. I don't sure. know some of those depths, but mm-hmm. I'm just a fan of of the things he's written. Yeah. And this seems to be one of the things that really drives the story of that. You start in this happy, idealistic place. You have this journey, which is a long journey. As you talked about in the Two Towers, it kind of drags, right? Sure, it's a long sure. journey. And then you get to this point where things are dire. Things mm. are bad. Yeah. And all of a sudden, something happens that brings great joy. Right. And that direness, I, are you, I'm assuming, are you referring to the, the the ring and what the ring brings to this world? Well, and one of the unique things about Tolkien is he weaved it in it so many different ways, right? The ring. Yeah. But also Gandalf and, and Moria at the bridge mm. and facing mm. the demon and, yeah. and dying, you know, and yeah. disappearing into the darkness and he's right. gone, right? Like that's a moment. And then he shows up in the forest, right? Yeah. He's reborn sort of speak yeah and, and he comes back and that's that moment of great joy but then also uh when the ring is destroyed and, and they're saved by the eagles or when yeah aragorn is crowned king like there's so many aspects and i mean there's a hundred more that you could go into sure sure the story just keep bringing that idea back back yeah. into it and he pulls that back to to christ of right this idea of the sudden joy of things are dire right and then it changes in an instant right yeah and the cool thing about like the the mythology of the lord of the rings is it brings together so many mythological elements to it like you've got a a world in middle earth where there's elves and dwarves and people and the orcs which in the and the goblins and magicians and wizards and even these like demonic figures. And so 
you've got these uh you've got Sauron who creates these rings and gives three rings to the elves and the elves are kind of higher in the hierarchy of middle earth i think he gives what five or seven to the dwarves something like that i don't know off the top of my head and then when the dwarves are kind of in the middle and then uh man gets only like they or they get like nine or something like that Mm -hmm. because they're the most fragile and they're defined by their mortality Mm -hmm. so we get these rings but these rings kind of come with something attached to them and it's that the rings they're linked to the power of sauron and Sauron is, I don't know, what what would you call, consider him to be? like? He's kind of, uh, I don't know, probably like an angelic being is like a good, yeah. like a, a familiar word maybe for sure. us to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. describe him. Yeah. And so, of course, there's power in these rings. But what Sauron does is he infuses her, his power into one particular ring that is the one ring to rule them all. And... It's this ring that is highly coveted by everybody else. Mm-hmm. Because if you have that one ring, you can rule all, not just your people, you can rule all the tribes. But the thing about a ring and the the kind of the symbolism of the ring is that a ring binds you to something, right? So when we're, we're married, we have wedding rings on right now. Mm-hmm. The ring... The power in it is that it binds us to another person. And in the same way, the ring binds these people to Sauron. It creates this connection. And with Sauron being like this representation of darkness and evil, it binds you to that. And it begins to almost like you enter like a covenant with Sauron. And that covenant could be, for example... You know, you could turn invisible. You can hide. You can cloak yourself. You can mask yourself so that way you're protected. But in return of that, what do you see? You see this other world that exists. And you see Sauron at the heart of that world. And you hear Sauron. And you're linked to this connection with the spiritual. So you get this power. You get this cloaking. You get these things out of it, but it draws you into a world that no creature is is ready to handle hmm. or prepared for. Hmm. I don't know. How's that? Is that yeah. kind of? Yeah, I think it's interesting because one in the starting of the story, you have these elves, you have these dwarves, you have these human kings mm-hmm. who are accepting of these things. Yes, right. And I that is interesting, right? I haven't read the lost tales and the histories. Yeah. Which are quite deep. But for some reason, they were accepting of these rings. Yeah. And that is kind of interesting to me because Sauron is not, you know, he's kind of this deceptive figure. Right, right, right. You know, he's not outright known to be bad Mm -hmm. or, or these elves aren't foolish people. They wouldn't have accepted this. Yeah. But he... But he deceives them. Yes. And, and I think that's kind of an interesting thing is you're bound with people um, because the way that he kind of pulls them in to just deceive them is right. Like that hurts. Right. You know, right. think about, you know, you use the imagery of marriage with rings, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. when you're married to someone and they deceive you, that yeah. is painful. Yeah. And, you know, if that gives you kind of a con- correlation of like, 
the betrayal that happens, it's, it's really, it, it puts a lot of depth to the story. Right. You know? Well, and like for the, for the men, for example, these, these nine Kings, they forfeit their humanity, you know, that image is so powerful. And we'll talk about how Lewis uses that similar imagery as well, but how they forfeit that, which makes them human, that, which makes them unique and special in middle earth. And that's kind of what Sauron does. That's what he does is he says, oh, I'm going to give you these rings to rule your people. But you, ironically, it will alienate you from your people. Well, and ironically, it offers them long life, right? Eternal life. Yeah. But that is not a gift. Right. That wasn't a gift to them. It's the curse of eternal life. Right? Like the elves are jealous. And in the in the world of Middle Earth, the, the elves are jealous that men get to die. Yeah, and that's so fascinating. It is very fascinating. Yeah, but but the men cling to this idea of not dying, which is so true of our world, right? Yeah, like very, we don't very. Want, we don't want to die, mm-hmm. um, and we think it's a curse to die. Yeah, but part of Tolkien's work is to emphasize that, at least in this world, right now. It's a gift. Yeah. Which is kind of, it's, it's weird, right? Like we, who else is talking about that? Yeah. Not, I mean, we all want to be all powerful and to live forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Tolkien says, no, that's not the right way. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about death. And like one of the things that really moves me, I just rewatched the Fellowship of the Ring uh, last week. And it's so moving when Boromir at the end of the fellowship and Boromir is currently like the king. He's the, he's the king of like one of the groups of humans, right? One of the groups of men. Right. He's part of the, his father's the steward. Right. Of right. Gondor. Yeah. Which is because we know Aragon is the rightful king. But correct. They don't know where he's been. Right. So Boromir though, he has this moment before his death where he's, cause the ring makes people kind of act crazy. Oh yeah. And so poor Frodo, <laughs> we'll talk about Frodo in a second. Um, but you see Boromir wants the ring and he's trying to get it, but he like realizes he's so ashamed after he tries to kind of to jump to for take the ring by force. And it's like his death scene is so moving at the end of fellowship of the ring. Because there's almost this sense that, like, there's a peacefulness about his death. Because, you know, he's taking those arrows. He's taking that in. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, 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 like, don't take them out, you know? And there's this almost like this thought I had of, like, man, he resisted the ring. He was in the presence of the ring. And he is dying with his humanity intact. He is dying uncorrupted. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes him ultimately, you know, like a good king. Right. And that's kind of the eucatastrophe, right? Like he is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he is envious. He wants that ring. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's going to go to no end to get that right. ring. And then he, he snaps out of it. Yeah. And, he, and he's killed. But even though he was killed, you have that redemption. Yes. Which is yes. that that bizarre kind of melding of terrible things with good things yeah. that happens throughout the story. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about the ring mm-hmm. and what I think Tolkien is doing with it is that 
it's not necessarily a possessing thing, yeah, but that it's pulling out things within the people. Oh, interesting. You know, yeah. so like it's pulling out that greed in Boromir. Just what? Yeah, which is why, like, even there's the elf, the elf woman. I forget her name, but Galadriel. Who, I'm guessing the white one, the tall. Yeah, white, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she like almost she has that moment where she puts herself purposefully in the presence of the ring to see if she can. Yeah. You know, she and that's says, su- I failed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that sucks if you live eternally because, like, man, you got to deal with that forever. Yeah. You got to, like, you know, constantly resist that. Yeah. And I'm sure that's exhausting. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's a good good way to put it. Right. It's, it's an interesting part of it. And that's what uh, Gandalf talks about, the importance of Frodo. Yeah. Is that he is able, not perfectly, mm-hmm. as you see throughout the story, he right. fails. Yeah. But he has a... A fairly pure heart. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the wonderful thing about the hobbits is they're not caught up in this conflict of power. They are kind of a content tribe. Mm-hmm. They're content with their lot. They value a simple life. We in in a lot of ways we look at the hobbits and we say, "Man, I I wish life could be like that," you know, and that's what makes them so perfect for that. Right. And, and go ahead. And so, like, have you have you ever read like Joseph Campbell? I have not. But have you have you heard of him before? I mean, I've heard the name, but I could tell you. He's like the hero's journey guy, you know. Yeah. So you, I, I'm reading his book right now, The Hero of a Thousand Faces. And um, when did he write this? 1949, I think. Okay, so it's been a little bit. So yeah, it has right before Narnia and right as you know, Lord of the Rings, you know. But um, but so he he talks about like how uh, a myth. A, a story of this caliber has kind of three distinct acts or phases to it. Um, so act or phase one or whatever you want to call it is the departure. Uh, two is the initiation and three is the return. And you could very nicely slice the Lord of the Rings trilogy down this line. So like the, like fellowship of the ring being the departure, the two towers, the initiation and return of the King literally is the return, you know, mm-hmm. But um, I'll take this example here with the Fellowship of the Ring because I think it it fits so well. Is like the, there's like five kind of phases of within the departure. So like there's the call to adventure. So we have Gandalf discovering the ring that Bilbo has it, and then Frodo now being in possession of the ring. Right. So it's the that's the call that Frodo. You know, you have this ring now. You got to run. And then there's almost that like. There's there's a, a phase called it's like the refusal of the call, like I don't know if I can do this, you know, that initial doubt, hesitancy about it that we know that Frodo faces. And Gandalf is of course the guide figure, the supernatural aid, and we have people like Bilbo who give him the um what's the thing underneath? The yeah, armor. that's it. And you've got the elves that give him something. So you've got these figures early on in the story that Give him things that are going to aid him on his journey. And then you've got the crossing of the first threshold, you know, which is where that's like your first, that's like your moment where you officially transition from the familiar world to the unfamiliar world. This could be Frodo staying at that inn 
you know, and that's where he meets Aragon, and Aragon's like, you can't go back, you know, like, like it's, you're, you're slicing, you're severing those ties, right? you know, there's no going back, you have to, the orcs are coming, we have to run, and then the belly of the whale, which is where, like, you kind of go to this place, a dark place, if you will, where you've experienced, uh, like a loss of some sort. So, you know, you think of Jonah with like the belly of the whale. Mm -hmm. And it's like this period where you're trying to figure out how you're going to do this. And so after Gandalf dies, we see Frodo mourning and we see that Bormir wants the ring and Frodo. So Frodo in the belly of the whale, in that pit of despair, you know, he decides he needs to go out on his own. And that's eventually what will lead him into the next book and also the next phase as well, um, where he'll face all the trials and and the initiation and all that stuff. So, Yeah, and I think um, part of what's driving Tolkien, everything that's driving Tolkien is, as we've said before, his, his Catholic faith. Yeah. And part of what's important there is his idea, his, his understanding that – in the Christian life, mm-hmm. suffering is important. Yeah. It, it is an important part of the journey. Yes. And I think that's kind of what you're touching on a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and that. it's really cool that you even have like in Joseph Campbell, someone who's not a Christian, someone who has dedicated his life to understanding stories and myth around the world. And it's right there that Joseph Campbell is saying that's inevitable. That's a piece of the story. And what makes the story meaningful? And it's hard for us to admit that, right? I say this in my workshops. It's hard for us to admit that when our lives face sorrow mm-hmm. and tragedy and suffering, because we're like, no, I don't want that. But that's actually what story is made of. And if our lives are telling stories, then should we really be surprised when we face these things? Yeah, it seems to be... It, it, it's funny that we get caught off guard. Yeah. So anything else about the mythology of Lord of the Rings that we got to add before we kind of transition into Narnia? Hmm. I think that's a fair introduction, right? Cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. For the scope of this. Sure, sure. Good. Awesome. Transitioning over to Narnia, and we'll come back to, to Middle Earth in a bit. Just kind of give a, a little bit about Narnia's mythology. So Narnia is a little different because it's there's a long-standing debate to say the least in lewis and narnian circles of do you read the books in chronological order Mm -hmm. according to the box or do you read them in publication order correct so when i was over at your place last night i saw that you had them in publication order which is the way i was which is the way you were raised oh man but lewis himself says Read them in chronological order. Right. Yes. You know? So, and that's what I did when I did my deep dive into Narnia. I did read them in chronological. I think next time I will read them in publication order just to see what the experience is what like. What I like about the publication order yes. is that you go through these first five books. Yes. And then you get to the magician's nephew. Yeah. And that's what really everybody kind says. It's like, you know, it just opens up things to it. Whereas yeah. when you start with that, you. It's still great, yeah. But you have that from the beginning, and then you go through the other things. I love it, that kind of surprise. Well, well, yeah, and it's a prequel, and it's designed to be a prequel. Yeah. You know, it's it's not necessarily designed to be the first book. It's meant to be like, oh, I've been in this world. Let's let's go back. Yeah, 
I, I one of the things, and I kind of alluded to that. I was going to mention this uh, when I said this earlier. So, like the first three books he writes, you know, Lion Witch Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay, I'm convinced that that was his original trilogy idea. Why? Um, because Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, it's I almost I almost tell tell people that I almost feel like Lewis shot himself in the foot with starting out with that story because you tell in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the most epic story about, you know, the death and resurrection of the king. You know, mm-hmm. you're telling the story of Jesus mm-hmm. in your first book, you know? And I still think that, like, for me, there is no other Narnia story that is as epic even it you is know, hard to beat. It's hard to top it. It really, and even like the movie, it's hard to top that movie. I'm like, right. how are you going to do that better? Um, but then you get Prince Caspian, which is really about like the restoration of you know the true uh, faith and religion after it's been corrupted, which I'll talk about how in a second. And then you've got Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is about how do I really live out the spiritual life That's even when to Eustis comes in right even to the yes and even to the point of death because voyage of the dawn treader ends um with that beautiful statement and I'll kind of mention this and I'll kind of go backwards into the mythology from here but it ends with you know these two kids who have been in narnia through the three books and aslan's telling them you can't come anymore mm. Your time here is over. And it ends with, you know, when you go back to your world, are you there too, sir? I am, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Mm. So, and he goes on to say more, but like, I feel like that, kind of ending of Voids of the Dawn Treader where they're heading into Aslan's country. That really feels like the end of a trilogy. Like that kind of feels like the culmination of those characters and that story. And I feel like everything else we get in Narnia is like bonus. Like it fleshes it out. It mm-hmm. better helps me better understand the world. And it's fun to go forward. Like I like the silver chair. I like the last battle. Mm-hmm. I enjoy those stories. But I feel like maybe Lewis had that trilogy kind of in mind. So, but then he went forward into it. I don't know. What are your thoughts well, on that? And I wonder if that's a bit of our feelings towards writings now. Right? Yeah. Things are written with an intentional plot line. Right. Or, right. you know, and sometimes they're not, right? Like, I know you're a big comic book fan, right? Yeah. And so you have all these different authors bringing things in. You don't always have this big storyline. You have of little one things. man's vision. Yeah. Right. But when we're talking about things like, think about like Harry Potter, you have someone who mm-hmm. seemingly had it laid out. Yeah. I don't know if that was Lewis's intention. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it right. was. Yeah, I don't but, know if it was either. You know, is that good or bad? You yeah. know, those are some of the things like as you're starting to think about critiquing works, not sure. not saying bad things about it, but just starting yeah. to try and understand it more is is it good or bad if he had a progress of 
overview right. of it, or did he kind of do it piece by piece? Sure, sure. Yeah. You should read Michael Ward's. I know. Book. Now I want to. You really to. should because I think you'd find it interesting. I yeah. I haven't read it entirely. I've read parts of it, but mm-hmm. he talks about um, he talks about Lewis's vision for the seven planets of mm. like the old mythological idea of the seven planets, and I can't yeah. list them off to you. But right, you know, right, right. Um, and those are the seven books of Narnia. He gives Ooh, it this I've big, never heard that interpretation before. Yeah, he gives a very good... Oh, I wow. mean, he's like a Lewis scholar. Yeah. I mean, that's what he does. That's so cool. So you should read that. I think it would be interesting. Yeah, I do want to. And, and he faces the same thing as what you're saying. Is for so long, people have had a hard time figuring out how this is one big package. Sure, sure. You know, so I mean, it's not at the end of the day, there. it's just worth diving in and enjoying and feasting on it, you yeah. know? Um, for those, oh, go ahead. I think what's interesting about what Lewis is doing yeah. is not necessarily whether he's trying to convey a perfect arc between book one and seven, yeah, but that there's important things for him in terms of what is true. That he's bringing into each yeah, book. Yeah, he definitely has an idea, you know, um, of kind of what he wants to communicate. So, like, you've got the magician's nephew, and it's this very, very Genesis mm-hmm. parallels, Absolutely. you know. And, you know, you've got the story of starting off in London, and you've got these two children, you know, Diggory and Polly, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, they find these magic rings and that brings them into the wood between the worlds. Mm-hmm. And then the first world they actually end up in is the land of Char. Mm-hmm. And that's where they see all these statues. And I love, I, I hope, you know, Magician's Nephew is really something I hope to see on the big screen or the small screen one day. I'd love to see like how, you know, Jadis, Jadis, how she completely annihilated her own home planet like that's just savage but already like she's just a really intimidating villain just from her backstory alone before she even does anything in this universe Mm -hmm. but we know that you know they ring the bell they the the bell that's just sitting there and it's just like oh i gotta ring the bell and of course that brings her out and that actually brings her to london which is really interesting about magician's nephew is you see narn or the the not the land of Narnia necessarily, but you see the mythology in the real world right. and you see them intersecting, which is one of the things I really have always enjoyed about that book. Well, and I think that's what Tolkien critiques a little bit is that like you've brought this into the yeah, real world. He's not, he's not a fan of... But it seems like Lewis's point is that these stories that are fictional yeah. are a part of the real world. Yeah, that's, I, I, I totally see that. Yep. What's going on I totally reality. get that vibe too. I think that's what... You know, to agree with what he's doing is yes. saying, you know, yes, these are written stories that he's come up with, yeah. but they are reflecting yeah. what's going on. Yes. And I think both of them have good points in what they're what they're trying to set out to do there. Yeah. But um, but yeah, when they go back, when they try to bring her back to that land, they actually end up accidentally going to a different world. And we see in one of my favorite sequences in, in the seven books is Aslan creating narnia and um do you listen to the gray havens at all Mm-mm. the band no. have you heard of them uh, i mean i it sounds i've i think i've heard of them but i could i don't know oh they're fantastic know. i mean they write songs about lewis and right. tolkien and obviously with a name like that gray right. havens but they have a great song about aslan creating 
the universe. I'll we'll have to listen to it. You know, well, yeah. Um, it's really cool. Uh, but yeah, I love that sequence of Aslan singing creation, mm-hmm. singing Narnia into being. And it's, it's it's so beautiful how Lewis writes that. Oh, yeah. And then we've got, you know, we've got Jadis who's trying to to kill Aslan with this pole. And it just hits Aslan and it doesn't even phase him. And that becomes the lamppost. That I love the weapon that she uses will become the instrument to which uh, the people that will defeat her will come into the world. And Mm -hmm. that actually leads me to probably what my favorite thing about the mythology of Narnia is. Um, And it has to do with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but this is other books, obviously. This is a huge theme in them as well. But I love the idea that... So, okay, so... Diggory and Polly, they find this fruit that they need to take back to heal his mom, mm-hmm. you know, and they take, uh, there's a tree that's planted to keep Jadis out of there and the tree of protection. And he, they, I think Diggory takes a part of that tree and makes the wardrobe, right? Or something like that. Correct. Um, but the tree in Narnia dies and that's where Jadis comes in and she creates the eternal winter where it's always winter and never Christmas as the great Reliant K song also says. Absolutely. Um, but, but yeah, so there's this winter and it, and I love this image of just an eternal winter because it, it would suck. You know me, I'm a wimp in this <laughs> winter of Buffalo here. Yeah. So um, you, you, you guys might be able to deal with an eternal winter, but I can't, so I need some sunshine. So you have this winter that goes on for a hundred years and the only thing they have is a promise, but it's interesting because the promise is not necessarily that Aslan is going to fix everything. The promise is that when a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve sit on the throne, that's when things will be made right. Now, Aslan is the one who, of course, ensures that that happens you know the children come in through the wardrobe one by one you know lucy and edmund and susan and peter they come in to narnia and we know that jadis already has that plan with edmund to try to get edmund over and lures and tempts him into that that place uh and caters to the jealousy and the things that he's feeling Mm -hmm. but we know that Aslan's goal is to make it so that that happens, that human beings will set the world right again. And I think you see where I'm going with this, that even to the point where Aslan will trade his life to the White Witch so that one of those human beings who's guilty and sinful and all mm-hmm. that, that he could go free mm-hmm. so that that promise could still be fulfilled. And that, to me, is one of my favorite ways of understanding the story of Jesus, is that the story of Jesus is about setting the world right again. So, And N.T. Wright talks a lot about this. So that human beings can take their place of properly, you know, running this world right. as, as a new humanity as redeemed. That's why Edmund's redemption is so beautiful in Lion Witch Wardrobe in that book because he changes. He changes because of his encounter with Aslan, because of what Aslan's willing to do. 
And it, all, it makes him a very good character, especially when you get to Voyage of the Dawn Treader and mm-hmm. you've got Eustace. And Eustace is kind of like a, a similar version of Edmund of how he used to be. And Edmund is able to show this grace towards Eustace, you know? So. Well, and that's one of the things that almost bothers me when I hear people talk about it. I just, I wish God would come and set this straight. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Because I think God is saying, you need to be the people, the, yes. right, the type yes. of people who are going to set yes. this straight. Let's right? go. Like, I'm coming. Yeah. And certainly my work is doing this. Yeah. But you have to want this. You have to be the yeah. type of people who want this. And Edmund had to be the type of person to change. And he had to have that transformation yeah. in order to rightfully rule Narnia. And that's why it's like this like this amazing period in Narnian history because these four They've gone through the hero's journey. It's it's a great Narnia and and both in Middle Earth as well. It's the perfect bringing together of like, and some people might be offended when I say this, but it's the perfectly way of bringing together, you know, the Judeo Christian understanding of of creation and the world and all that, and kind of the more mythological hero's journey, even pagan understanding of it, mm-hmm. and it brings these images. And these ideas together in one place and says that they can exist together. And I know Lewis and Tolkien both believed that they could. Um, And so I think it's so beautiful the way they tie these things together. And this is my tangent here. Um, It bothers me so much, you know, when like, like, and I get it, you know, because there's different things that different people can be offended by. You know, but I know in a lot of Christian circles, they'll they'll look at something and they'll say, "Oh, there's a witch in there. There's magic in there," and you just rub that off. You write that off because you're just like, "Oh, I don't see it." But Lewis and Tolkien are just masters of showing us like it's not about magic. Like that's that's not really what the story's about. Like there's this like they're they're using these images that have been pervasive throughout cultures and time and history. They're using these ideas together to tell stories of what's true and meaningful. Well, and what's important to them is to redeem these stories. And to redeem, absolutely. Because, you know, they go into these pagan stories and they Mm -hmm. acknowledge that there's things that aren't good within them, but there are beautiful things within them. Mm -hmm. There's there's those glimpses of truth that we've been talking about. and, And they both see... That God, that Christ is going to redeem all of this, yeah. and use it for His glory, and and so they were at works painstaking work to use this for His glory. Yeah, yeah, which is fascinating, and I think it shows a depth of their understanding of history, of Absolutely. philosophy. Right, they are smart men. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I don't have any critique against. Um, I, I know you just did a, a podcast on. Um, Batman. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. have any critique about those authors. Right. But I, And I don't know much about them. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine they have the depth of understanding that these two men had. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and they're both important in their own right. But Lewis and Tolkien understood what was happening throughout history mm-hmm. and throughout these different cultures and through their mythologies and bringing them to what they could define as... What is true? Yeah. Um, 
They really were students of these things. Yeah. And it's why, you know, sometimes Narnia in particular, I know Narnia gets picked on a lot more for this. Sometimes Narnia is too Christian for non-Christians, and sometimes it's too pagan for Christians, you know? Yeah. And I encourage people to really just try to ask yourself when you read these stories, like, are the ideas, you know, the themes... Are they true of what it means to be human? And I think, and you do that with Tolkien as well, Lord of the Rings. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're so drawn to them uh, is because they echo things that we experience. They echo that deeper myth, you know? Well, and I've been reading some Dallas Willard recently. Yeah. And one of the things he was talking about was the difference between the change of the heart versus the working of the law. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think it's easier for people to come to these works and say, all right, there's a witch involved. Yeah. This isn't good. I'm going to not, I'm going to avoid it. Or on the other side to say, oh, Aslan's a Jesus figure. I don't like that. Right. I, that's indoctrination. That's, you know, this or that. Whereas when you go to Dallas, he is really trying to say, you need to be able to work through some of these things. And come to terms with them in your heart, right? Like, yeah, it could be bad. It right? could be, you know. Mm-hmm. But but don't don't just push things off because it's easier. Yeah, work through things. Yeah, absolutely. And even having the understanding that no matter what you read, no matter what stories you consume, the author's worldview is on display. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter what you read. Um, you're getting their perspective, their worldview, because it's impossible not to write and include that. And that's that's why Lewis was just very big on like, oh, it's not like, I'm not intentionally making an allegory. I'm just telling a story of the world, of a world. And of course, if that's Lewis's worldview, that's the perspective, that's the, the lens, the narrative lens that you have, that you see the world with. And every writer does that. Every writer, every one of these great, franchises and stories we're talking about they all do it and i think it's just learning to recognize that can truly be a beautiful thing absolutely one of the things i think is kind of an interesting aspect of both of their stories is the understanding of the will yeah you know so for uh, edmund it was an action of his will to kind of make these choices that he did. Right. Right. And so for Frodo it was also an action of the will. And for Gollum is a good character for that, right? Gollum like, is a great we haven't talked about him. What a great the character. Things that he became, right? Yes. Like those were his another character who lost something. Right. And out of choice. Yes. And that is really important for both of them. You know, yeah. throughout all of their writings, that choice is really important and that they have this choice and that they're choosing things. And it's an act of the will. Mm-hmm. And I, I bring that up because it's interesting as you're getting to work stories of, yeah. of our time, and, and they don't view it that way. Right. We view things very differently. Sure. Right? He, think, I haven't seen it, but The Joker. You've seen The Joker, right? Yeah, which right? we never got to talk about that, actually, on our hour and a half Batman episode. I, we never got to it. I imagine from the trailers, and, uh-huh. and this is a bad thing to do, but I imagine from the trailers... That they paint it in a way that it wasn't always a choice of the will. 
but that it was to some degree things that have happened to him. Right. 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 You know, that's pretty common for the last even 50 years. Yes. That yes. it's the things that have happened that have made you this person. Yeah. But Lewis and Tolkien don't see it that way. That you have to make a choice, in other words, to be a certain kind of person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like, I think we can allow certain things to define us. That could be, we could leave it at that. Or we could say, you know, there's a preferred, we talk about this in narrative practices all the time. There's a preferred narrative I want to live by. There's a preferred identity that I want to be in. And I have to decide and make choices in that. So that's the choice of the will, right? Yeah. So, but it's hard. hard. Yeah, of course it's hard. And that's why, you know, we can look at things that have happened to us and we can let that inform us, but we don't have to let it define us. Absolutely. start wrapping this thing up here because um, we're just having a lot of fun with this but um we could talk about this all day i know oh absolutely but like okay so when we think about you know kind of like maybe our favorite moments or a couple of our favorite like like stories or or moments like uh i've already mentioned for me like i love lion witch and wardrobe it's hard to top that story i really like magician's nephew i'm a sucker for creation stories mm-hmm. I love Voyage as well, because I, what I really love about Voyage of the Dawn, these are probably my top three Narnia books. Sure. Although I will say that The Last Battle is severely underrated. Oh, it's good. It's, yeah. and It has one this, of my favorite images. Oh my gosh. Which one? Well, further up and further in. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, they're oh, just yeah. running. And, it's... I, and it was, oh my gosh. Oh, so this is a spoiler alert if you've never read it. But, like, it was super dark at the end when I realized, like, you were all in a plane crash. And you're all dead. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. You just killed off your whole cast? Absolutely. Oh, what a... That's like, oh, man. That's like if Endgame, it was just like, let's kill off all six original right. Avengers. But for Lewis, but that's not the end. I know. And that's <laughs> what's so cool about the further up, further in imagery. Um, but what, yeah, going back to Voyage, though, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's my favorite, like, probably, like, group of people, like in the story like in terms of character dynamics like i love you know lucy and the innocence of lucy but i also like how lucy gets tested a little bit in it and i love edmund who's not perfect still but he's come a lot further eustace is kind of like our our wild brat spoiled brat who needs to undergo a conversion of sorts and his whole thing of becoming a a beast right you know, he loses his humanity when he sees the gold. It very much reminds me in The Hobbit of Smog, um, that encounter with the dragon. But we see Eustace, uh, he becomes that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he puts the gold on. And it's not until Aslan comes that he can have his humanity back. And I love, like, like rip a cheap. Oh, fun. And just w- that he's a very layered character. Yeah. The great mouse of fiction and Caspian. And I just love the whole, like, kind of like episodic, like, we just got to go to these islands. And why do we need to help these seven people? Because it's the right thing to do. And it's just like, let's go. There's, there's people who are lost. We need to go find them. 
That's all the story is. Yep. And how cool is that as a and metaphor for life? It. Like there's people out there in the world that are lost. Let's go find them. And some of them can be saved and some of them can't be saved, you know, which is really powerful in and of itself. And they all face their own trials along their way. All the different islands. It's so creative uh, what happens on them. So those are like my favorite Narnia books and moments. And in terms of Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, like I just love Hobbit's so much fun. It is. I, I I don't know how you feel about the movies, but the Hobbit movies. Oh, I'm not a fan. But yeah, I feel like you could have just made either one or two really good movies rather than stretching them out over three. But like the the movies, like I like the goblin sequence, you know, in the books with the goblins, mm-hmm. and I love the stuff with smog and the and the cave and all that. And obviously the initial stuff with Gandalf there with all those hobbits in the hut and you know there's just so much good stuff there. But yeah, and then you and then you can't beat the ring getting thrown into the hub, you know, Sam and Frodo and so yeah, but that's obviously like who doesn't yeah, love absolutely. that? Absolutely, they're great. So uh, I think my um, all-time favorite Lord of the Rings uh moment is when Sam carries Frodo up. Yeah. Oh gosh, you, so uh, good. I cry. Yeah, uh, to oh, be it's honest, moving. I literally cried yeah. for that. And Sam, it's moving. Yeah, he's just so wonderful. I mean, it goes to speak about Lewis and Tolkien's bond as well as that they view friendship so important. Yeah, you know that they you do. need other people to get you through this. Right, right. And uh, yeah, well, it it is just it's hard yeah. for me to top that image. Yeah. Um, like I said, further up and further in, going, you know, the end of Narnia. It's so wonderful. When they meet Aslan, I mean, you know, when they talk about this lion who is good but not safe. Or, yeah. I don't remember which story it is, but yeah, the several. girl sees him in the wood and she's like terrified. Of oh, is that lion. horse and his boy? I, I think it might be. Yeah. I'm she doesn't know who he is. Yeah. I remember what's, which part is from which story. But right. Yeah. That is just such a great image. Lewis is really good at painting these pictures. Yes. Yes. Right? One of the best. One uh, of the best. Tolkien's bet great at building this world. Building worlds. Yep. Agreed. Lewis paints these little portraits. Yep. So totally. Well. Agreed. Oh my gosh. I mean, it is. They're dramatic. Yeah. They're dramatic and they're fun. Yeah. Um, wow. I wish because of that, what you just said with the images there. Like, I think Lord of the Rings has done, like, despite the Hobbit movies' fa- flaws and failures, I think the Th- Lord of the Rings trilogy, you're never going to top a film version of the movies, that. Yeah. But I, I really, I love the first Narnia movie to death, and that's about it. Um, I really wish the passion that went into that first Narnia movie could have been put into more. You know, I, I still to this day have not seen Voyage of the Dawn Treader because I'm, I refuse to get my heart broken. Um, because that is, that's in my top three favorite Narnia books and I just don't want to see it get butchered. Yeah. So I know Netflix is coming out with a series. I'm really hoping they nail these books the way they did with like a series of unfortunate events. We'll see. I hope they do them well. Amazon's doing more Lord of the Rings stuff. How are you, how do you feel about that? Um, I'm, I imagine it will, it won't be that great. Mm, I'm sure it'll be beautiful and like the artistry of it. Right, like they'll probably paint this world wonderfully. Yeah, but I can't imagine they'll get the depth of Tolkien's emphasis on Christianity. 
Yeah, that's my biggest fear too, is that those themes and ideas would go under the wayside. Which is fine if you and, don't agree with him. Right. But his work is, that's his work. Right. And I'm you hoping know. with Narnia that since the Lewis estate was very particular about Narnia and how the rights were going to be distributed, and now Netflix has the sole rights, I'm really hoping there's something in the conversation that will go well. Yeah. Did you w- see the, the movie The Green Knight came out no. in the last couple of years? No. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Oh, it's this medieval poem okay sir gawain and the green knight okay and so they just came out with this movie and i was super excited because i remember reading the poem in high school yeah it's like it's like an arthurian legend okay and um i was hesitant but you know the trailers look good and stuff yeah i watch it and it's beautiful yeah i mean like they did a great job in that but the morals of the story are just stripped away Mm. which is you know what I know that, and I didn't expect them to do that right, but that's kind of how I feel about The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I think it'll be a beautiful world, but I think they'll strip away that depth. Yeah. At least we'll always have those movies. Absolutely. So let's close with this. So we always like to talk about in these Why We Love episodes, how do these stories of fiction impact the real world, real life stories um, that we live in our day-to-day lives. So in other words, how do they inspire us to live a meaningful story? Because the stories that you consume and the stories you surround yourself with, they do impact you. They do influence you, whether you realize it or not. So if you could, Ryan, either from Tolkien or from Lewis's world, you know, or a little bit of both, how do these stories help you? Uh, influence you, inspire you to live a life worth living. Well, that's what we've talked about already. Yeah. It's this idea of making the right choices, mm-hmm. of choosing the will. They both have been tremendously yeah. influential on me on that. I, I can't distinguish who is more influential. Sure. But this idea that where am I headed? Keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. You know, what's the journey look like? Mm-hmm. And and what do I, where do I want it to go? Yeah. I like that. Those are important things. Yeah. You know, it's easy to go down the wrong path unless you have a vision for mm-hmm. where to go. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's good. That really helps me to make the choices of thy will to, to keep on. Yeah. How about you? Um, obviously the image of the ring, finding out what your ring is, like, what is that thing which is, is pulling you in, Mm. pulling you into the darkness and exposing that, which you need to deal with in your life Mm. for Lewis and for Narnia, I'll actually read a, an excerpt of this passage. So a couple years ago, uh, if you guys, if anyone listens to my other podcast that I hosted life in the gray, you would know that in 2020, I had a bit of an up and down kind of faith crisis. And we go through these valleys in our faith, you know. And I actually read The Silver Chair that year as I was experiencing all this doubt and this, you know, just this disillusionment with Christianity and whatnot. This really floored me and almost like I I, I didn't see this passage coming at all because I read it as a kid, but... I don't remember this part and the weight of it, but it's towards the end of the book. And you've got this witch 
um, who's been seduced, you know, in a way kind of seducing the, the prince, right? Um, you know, where he ties him to the silver chair every night and all that. But you've got uh, Eustace and Jill that are here. And the witch is trying to lure them into this kind of trance. Mm. And the witch is essentially telling them, like, and I'll read it right here. Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia, no overlord, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now to bed all and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. Mm. And they're almost pulled in. They're almost seduced by that, right? They're almost pulled into that because it sounds, the whole argument, it sounds very convincing. And Puddleglum, who is like the most jaded, cynical creature in all the Narnia books, he puts his hand in the fire and he wakes up out of this trance, which is an interesting image in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But then he says this, which is probably my favorite, one of my favorite passages, but it's probably the passage that most inspires me in this series, where he says to the witch, one word, ma'am, one word, all you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I could say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. And he goes on to say, We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. Before babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. And that image there is what got me through those really hard seasons. And when I faced those hard seasons, because I had to eventually ask myself the question, if there is no Jesus or no God, if there is no heaven, no afterlife, no eternity, is the life that I'm living still worth it? Is the things that Jesus stands for still worth standing for? And... When you're in those very dark places and you your head gets cluttered with theology and deep questions about life and I'm not sure what to make of this, you have to come back at the end of the day and ask yourself, is the true myth here? Is this where I find what life is all about? And that I think really is what Lewis and Tolkien help people do so well is that no matter what sort of deconstructions and things we go through in our lives and in our faith journeys, we know, we ask ourselves, but is the story still true? Even if I don't know historically how it all pans out, 
even if I don't know all the ins and outs of how God threw this all together and how it works, even if I am going to criticize the Bible and try, you know, wrestle through the tough passages and whatnot, is the story true on that deeper level? And that's what gets me through the hard things in life. And so I always think about, no matter how jaded and cynical you are, like Puddle Glum, even somebody like that is able to see the true myth as real. Thanks, Derek. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Any final thoughts before we close out? So many. (laughs) (laughs) Anything you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. I think that... As you come to loose in Tolkien, mm-hmm. they will force you to think about your life. Yeah. Think about your worldview. Yeah. They challenge you to that. Yeah. And that is one of the great things about them. Mm-hmm. You know what? You can be critical of them, but they're going to make you work for it. Yeah. Um, which is important. Yeah. Right? As you're talking about yeah. coming into these dark moments in life, you're, you know, you're challenging things. They're going to make you work for it. Yeah. And and I think that would help so many people if they were willing to work for it. And, yeah. And particularly Lewis is a great person to help you with that. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I can't thank you enough for being on here. This was a blast. We could do this for hours. Um, I still haven't even finished my Guinness because I'm just having such a good time talking. <laughs> I can't but, say the same, but thanks for having me. <laughs> I'll probably go finish it and uh, <laughs> head off to bed. But yeah, this has been wonderful. So thank you so much again, Ryan. And we'll be back next month with another Why We Love. Uh, about. We'll go back to superheroes now. So we transition from fantasy to another superhero. But I won't tell you who it is. It'll be a surprise. Uh, but I'll give you a hint. It's somebody who it's their 60th anniversary. So big deal, big deal. But yes, so thank you for being here. And if you love talking about stories and all this good stuff, my workshop, Live a Meaningful Story, is the place for you to be. So feel free to uh, inquire at allthingsnarrative.com about booking a workshop for your group uh, or for your teenagers in your after school program or your youth group. And, you know, if you want to talk more specifically about the stories of Lewis and Tolkien and what that means for your life, uh, let's do something. Let's collaborate on that. So that's what we're here for at All Things Narrative is to bring these connections together with the stories we love and the stories we live. And until next time, this is your friendly narrative practitioner signing off. Thank you and take care.